I'd like to enter into a mental dialogue with you this morning about a conversation that I think everyone has with themselves or others at some point. It centers around this question. How do I deal with the wrongs that I've done in my life? Uh, or more simply put, how do I find forgiveness? Now, I contend this is a universal pursuit, a, a universal question. It's something everyone asks of themselves and possibly others at some point in their life. My prayer is that I'll answer uh, the reasons why I believe that either later in this message or perhaps even more so in our Extra Point podcast. Just be aware that I want to bring some insight into that question this morning. How do I find forgiveness? And this is what everybody's wondering. How do I uh, absolve myself of the quote-unquote crimes I've done? Well, the Bible gives us a beautiful answer. And it's located in Psalm chapter 130. It's one of those most compelling places where we find the answer to that question. So take your Bibles and locate Psalm 130. And let's read together the entire Psalm just for a moment. And then we'll take a microscope and zero in on verses 3 and 4. Here's Psalm 130. Eight verses. The psalmist would write this Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now as a whole, if you took all eight verses, you could see this psalm in, in several ways. Some see it as the first six verses being a a personal inspection, followed by two verses that more of a corporate proclamation. Other folks see this psalm as a song uh, with uh, four stanzas, verses one and two, then three and four, then five and six, and of course, seven and eight. They kind of bounce back and forth. Others see this as perhaps um, a call to the Lord. You notice how in the first six verses, the common phrase is, O Lord, and then a call to the Lord's people. You see that in verse 7 and 8 with the word Israel. And while it would be a, a delight and a treat to take this whole psalm, break it apart, and see it that way, I think for our time this morning, I want to put a microscope on verses 3 and 4 and analyze this next to last but God passage in our summer series. This is where we're going to find the answer to the question that I think everyone at some point asks themselves. Where do I find forgiveness? How do I deal with the sin in my life, the things I've done that are wrong? And verse 3 and 4 provides the answer. So can we together out loud read these verses? Join me, would you? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Allow me to bring to your attention some summary words that I think will help us understand these two verses and answer our questions. Those words will be these, uh, impossibility, interruption, and intention. We're going to define those and explain those as we kind of understand these two verses. First of all, 
the impossibility. This is what's talked about in verse three. And the impossibility that is stated is that no one at the end of the day is innocent. So the impossibility is actually innocence. Now, allow me to explain what I mean by that word and, and where I draw it from in this text. Look at verse three with me. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The sense of this verse, the, the picture being painted is that at the end of time, at this final judgment, is there anyone that could endure God's inspection? Is there anyone that's going to endure God's judgment? Now, let me just stop there and give you some insight into that that thought and that question, because it, it has some assumptions. First of all, that, that we are accountable to God, and I believe we are. All creatures, all creations will give an account to their creator, and God is the creator of every human being. And so as such, we will give an account to God. This is what this verse is stating. Now, this is why I believe innately Everyone has a sense of right and wrong and this constant question about how do I deal with the wrongs in my life? You see, the compass or the conscience that we have, it's from our creator and everyone has one. Now I admit to you, that conscience, that compass, it can be altered, affected, it can be seared uh, by several things in our life. And so that happens, but initially at least, God instills in every single one of his creations a compass, a conscience. That conscience tells us there is a right and wrong somewhere. They think that because God has a standard of right and wrong and we're made in his image. And so we bear that image, this, this initial innate understanding of a right and wrong system. And so throughout our life, we wonder how will I deal with my wrongs? And so this is a verse that really kind of brings to the forefront this question. Okay, in light of all the wrongs, if you stand before God and you line them up and you list them and that's all you have to show for it in that final day of judgment, who could stand before God? And the answer to the rhetorical question in this verse is no one. Left to yourself and only what you've done, you'll not endure God's final judgment. I won't either. Nobody can. There'll be no last person standing if God's judgment is, is um, experienced and all we bring is what we've done. Why is that the case? I think the meaning is found in the word mark. You see that in verse three, which the writer says, O Lord, should you mark our iniquities? The word mark, there's a very intriguing word. It has two components to it. One's what I call the, the red pen component. It means that, that, that God notes our sins. He, he's making notations, if you would, on our life and, and where it doesn't meet his standard. He's marking that. You, you, you've been, uh, uh, you remember, of course, sometimes in college and high school, uh, the professor, and she or he might take the paper you turned in and mark it up, perhaps with a red pen. That's how it was for me all the time. And, and they would show me where I didn't meet their standard. And they could do that because they were the professor. They set the standard. And so they kind of red penned my paper. I've got lots of those in both undergraduate and graduate. And you probably have the same experience. 
this verse is saying that, that God does that. He, he, he red pens our life. He sees where our life does not match up to his standard. And he has the right to set the standard. He's the creator. But it also has this idea that God not only red pens or notes where we miss the mark, but God sees every single aspect of that. The word has this connotation of everything being in God's sight. So we bring to the table these two traits of God, his omnipresence, his omniscience, in which there's nothing outside of the, of the eyesight of God. You know, I don't know this is the best way to, to describe this, but this word makes me think of that line in Monsters, Inc. You know, when the lady says, always watching, Wazowski, always watching. That's kind of what this word means, that, that, that everything's in his sight. Now, maybe that's not a good way to see God, but it's a good way to see this word, all right? So this is what's happening here. God is marking. He sees, he knows, he notes. And, if, and because of that, when we stand before him, there is no way any of us will escape his judgment. Now, let me answer a deeper, further why. I'm gonna stay on this point a little bit. It's because God's marking is twofold. God's marking is both quantifiable and qualifiable. Follow me. God's marking, God's noting, God's seeing, his, his full awareness of our life and our sin is quantifiable in that he knows the acts of our sin. He sees the amount of it, all right? But it's also qualifiable in that he sees the fact of our sin, that it actually exists inside of us. So in the first case, quantifiable marking, God notes and sees the amount. He sees that we commit sin. But in the second factor, the qualifiable nature of God's marking, he sees that we are sinners. So this is why no one will stand in that final judgment day. If all we bring to the table is everything we've done, there is no way anyone can stand, can remain, can endure God's judgment. Because first of all, we have quantifiable sin. Even one sin, if you bring that in, you violated God's standard, which is perfect, so you're out. But, but we have even something worse. We have a qualifiable sin problem. We are sinners by nature. So in our, in our doctrine, in our belief, we say and believe that we are sinners by nature and by action or by choice. Both are in view here. So this is why in the marking of God, in his seeing and knowing and noting, in his red pinning and constant awareness, no one can stand and endure God's final judgment. We are both quantifiably and qualifiably guilty. Every single one of us. The New Testament echoes this when it says in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us. This Psalm is simply uh, repeating that when it says, if you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? And the clear answer is no one. Now, this is sobering, staggering news. What's one to do in light of the impossibility of innocence? Well, aren't you glad that there's a verse four? 
These six words bring joy to our heart. Here's the divine pivot. Verse four, but with you, there is forgiveness. Isn't that delightful and beautiful? Now, I want us to camp on those six words for a bit. And I want you to notice, first of all, that the word but in verse four is why he can use the word if in verse three. Track this with me, okay? You'll notice in verse three, he's saying, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand. He's not saying that God doesn't do that. He's saying that God doesn't do that only. Some, I think, misconstrue this and say that God doesn't mark iniquities. This is a false view. That's why the word if is used. I don't hold to that view. I think actually God does mark and note and see and is fully aware of every bit of our sin. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. He's not overlooking it, acting like it's not there. He sees every single bit of it. And in response to it, instead of leaving us to ourselves, God also forgives sin and he forgives sinners. This is why the word if is there. He's saying, God, if all you did was mark our iniquities, we would all be toast, but you also forgive iniquities. Hallelujah, church. This is great news. Now let's answer a few more questions about this six word phrase. Who is the one who forgives? The text tells us it is God. It is the Lord. So yes, he notes and sees, is aware of our iniquities, but he's also the one who forgives our iniquities. Notice how every bit of this is God-centered. And can we just pause here and say, this is the way it should be because it's God that we have offended. Do you recall what David said? I believe it's Psalm 51. Even after adultery and murder, he says in his prayer of repentance, against you and you only have I sinned. You see, I think innate in the human compass, innate in the human conscience is the awareness, the sense that even in our offense to others and our sin against others horizontally, there's this ultimate vertical sin that we've committed. We've broken a standard higher than, than ourselves that we didn't create, that, that God created. And we need some kind of forgiveness from the one who created us. That's what this is talking about. God provides that ultimate, most needed eternal forgiveness. And this is right. Remember, in every single religion other than biblical Christianity, they ask you to find your way to God. They ask you to do something to earn your forgiveness. Make a trip to a special place, pay a certain amount of money, uh, be involved in works, performance. Only in biblical Christianity does God move on our behalf to actually do what we cannot do, forgive us. So the text is right in asserting, yes, it's God who has set the standard. It's God who meets out the judgment, but it's also God who forgives us and spares us from the judgment. And what is it that God does? The Bible here says he forgives. That's a treasured word in the Christian faith, isn't it? Can I tell you, first of all, what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that God pretends something never happened. It doesn't mean that he just acts like it never occurred or even overlooks it and says, well, maybe it'll just go away. Forgiveness is actually, is actually God absorbing the pain. It's, it's God 
paying the price and then releasing the prisoner. It's God taking the place of the guilty and letting the, the prisoner go free. And this is how forgiveness is, even horizontally. There is no forgiveness if we act like something never occurred, but forgiveness actually is beneficial and real and practical when someone absorbs the pain of the offense and says, I will let the one who's guilty actually go free. I'll absorb the debt. I'll absorb the pain. I'll pay the penalty. That's what's happening here. And that's why this is a treasured, beautiful word in our Christian faith. Because God has absorbed the pain of sinners. Now the question you should be asking is, how has God done that? How has God arranged forgiveness for those who would never stand up and endure his, his judgment? Well, that's what the New Testament precisely unfolds by giving us the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is God's means of forgiveness. He came and he lived the perfect life as God and as man. We believe he was fully God and fully man. And in doing so, he could both pay the price and offer the sacrifice that God demanded. So Jesus came in for 33 years. He was God among us. He lived the perfect life. He died the sacrificial death, shedding his blood on the cross, which would cover our sin. And then he was raised in a victorious resurrection, proving his, his power over death and his satisfaction of God's uh, requirement. All these things lift Jesus up exclusively as the only means of forgiveness, as the perfect sacrifice, as the truly innocent one who took the place of all the guilty as the one who was not the prisoner and yet he endured our quote-unquote jail so that we could go free. Jesus is God's means of forgiveness. And I want to just encourage every single person here. This is the answer to the question. How do I find forgiveness? How do I make right the wrongs I've done? It's only through Jesus and Jesus is from God, and he's the means of forgiveness for every single person. One of my favorite verses that exclaims this and paints a picture for us is 1 Timothy 2.5, in which the Bible says this, that there is one mediator between God and man. It is the God-man, Christ Jesus. Do you, do you see the cross being painted there in front of you? Here Christ is the mediator between God and man. And he stretched out his arms on the cross. And there Jesus, as God and as man, died in your place. He shed his blood to cover your sin. He paid the price, the penalty. He absorbed the pain. And because Jesus stood in for us, he was the bridge between God and man. And now any man, woman, boy, or girl who trusts in Jesus and believes that Jesus Christ is God's means of forgiveness is considered right with God. The Bible says that, that God made Jesus to be sin for us, even though Jesus knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. And so now all who trust in Jesus as the only way to be forgiven for their sin, God clothes them with righteousness. Even though they're guilty, he declares them innocent. Even though they're an enemy, he declares them family. This is all because Jesus was the bridge on the cross between God and man. And this is what I think 
the psalmist in chapter 130 is prophetically referring to that with God, there is forgiveness. And that, that forgiveness is a person. It's Jesus Christ, the historical, evidential, time and space man who lived and was God and died in your place and mine and was raised again. And if you're wondering, where do I find forgiveness? It's in Jesus Christ alone. Now, what should that prompt us to do? Well, that's the third word. The intention of this kind of forgiveness is that God would be feared. Do you see the end of verse four? He says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I love this word, don't you? It means we're, we're, we're captivated by wonder. We're in rightful and reverential awe. And let's not back away from this word. Let's not try to find words to replace it. There is a rightness to being uh, correctly afraid of a God this powerful who can bring every one of his creatures into the place of final judgment and at the same time offer them forgiveness and spare them from that judgment. That's a powerful God and a God that powerful should be one that we are rightfully in awe of and worship and trust and obey and fear. You know, this is this word fear. Let's talk about that for a bit. It's, it's like what you feel when you see a lightning bolt or hear a lightning bolt and it's a little too close. Maybe you experienced that just a week or so ago when the lightning would crack. Maybe it hit one of your trees in your yard. You know what we don't say? We don't say, hey, lightning, back off. You're getting too close. We don't act like the lightning's offending us or encroaching our territory because lightning will do what it wants to do. We're not gonna mess with lightning. We don't tell it what to do. It's powerful. We actually stand in awe of it. We're captivated by it. We're fearful of it. It's the same thing you feel when you go to Niagara Falls. Uh, we went there years ago. Uh, in fact, Brooke was two when we went to Niagara Falls. And man, what, did I have an iron claw grip on her hand at the falls. And if you've been there, I wouldn't even call it a fence. It's more like just a, you know, a wimpy little rail that's kind of separating you from this little area that if you fell into, the current would, would take you away and the fall, over the falls you go. And we're sitting there with our kids watching it. And the thing is just incredibly captivating. I mean, you're, you're, you're left speechless because you're in awe of this incredible, powerful waterfall. We, we, we bought the tickets to the boat as well and, you know, donned the, the uh, waterproof kind of jackets and we drive under the falls. And the whole time, we just aren't even sure what to say because it just is so powerful. It's the same thing you feel at the Grand Canyon. We've been there as well. And we took our older, excuse me, took our younger two. And you know, the whole time we're making sure we don't step in the wrong place. And, and we hike down it one day and uh, not all the way to the bottom, but the, the, the entire time, you're almost not sure what to say because you know, one wrong step, one slip and the canyon wins, right? See, in both of these cases, whether it's lightning, the Grand Canyon, the falls, and in all of these cases, we don't step back and, and consider that situation overbearing. We don't think, hey, back off, canyon. Come on, falls, ease up. We actually give it the respect it's due because it's so powerful. This is what's behind the word fear. And when we see how God forgives and the fact that he does forgive, it's wrong of us to say, come on, God, back up. You're just overbearing. Can't you ease up a little bit? No, he's the creator. He sets the standard and he holds us to the standard. When he comes 
to finally judge based on his standard? He can do that. He's the creator. A God that powerful who can do that and at the same time bring forgiveness into that situation is a God we should not think is overbearing or, or uh, too hard. We should say, wow, what a powerful God that is and we should fear him. This is why forgiveness is one of the top reasons that we see God as powerful, as captivating, as wonderful, and we fear him. So let's review, can we? The three words we've looked at. Impossibility, we're all guilty before God. No one is innocent at the end of the day. There's no last person standing with his own credit or merit. Then interruption, that in the middle of that realization, God interrupts us with his forgiveness through Jesus. That brings joy and a smile to our face and hope to our heart. What it does, it results then in the intention that God has designed, which is that we fear him, we worship him, we trust him. So these two verses provide for us the answers to our initial questions. Remember what I mentioned uh, those were? That everyone's asking this universal pursuit. How do I deal with the wrongs that I've done in my life? because we all have this innate sense we violated a standard. We may, not sure, we may not be sure who the standard, uh, we may not be sure who has set the standard or what the standard is, but we have this innate sense we'll be accountable one day. This compass, this conscience. God comes in and interrupts that with his beautiful good news that in Jesus, he forgives us. And then that produces in us fear. And this is where we find forgiveness for our wrongs. This is the answer to the question that we find forgiveness from God in Jesus. Now, if you're still not convinced that this is the answer to the universal pursuit, that this is the, the solution to the conversation you have in your heart late at night or early in the morning or when you're driving alone, this is really the, the answer, the solution to the predicament that everyone faces. Let me just plead with you with one more uh, nugget of truth. One more place that I see this word stand and it's used in much the same way as it's used here in Psalm 130. Remember, I, I mentioned that the word stand in Psalm 130 kind of helps us see that the end judgment is in view and we're all having to you know, answer to God and how does one do that if all they have is what they've done on their own? The answer to that is no one can. Well, the same word is used in Revelation to describe the, the end of time when Jesus does return to judge the living and the dead. Here's what it says about that moment. Let me show you where the same word is used. I think it's just uh, a beautiful uh, moment here in the Revelation in which we find that, that the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and then it says this, everyone... In other words, it doesn't matter if you were powerful or not. It doesn't matter if you were a slave or if you were free, rich or poor. In other words, everyone at this time, when Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead, it says here, they realize that, wow, the, the time of his judgment's coming. And so those who are going to be in God's judgment, it says here, they were calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Same question in Revelation 6 that's in Psalm 130. 
Who can stand now that God's judgments come? Well, the answer is only those who have been forgiven by God through Jesus. You say, well, Todd, maybe I'm going to be really rich one day. Maybe I'll buy my forgiveness. Maybe I'll be famous or powerful. Maybe I'll be a military general. Maybe I'll be someone with great influence. In this Revelation 6 passage, all those people are mentioned, and they're all trying to hide themselves because they know nothing they've done, purchased, earned, or bought, can spare them God's judgment. And they're trying to find a place to hide. And John prophetically here writes about what that day looks like that's also referenced in Psalm 130. He asks the same question that the psalmist asked. Lord, who can stand when that day comes? Here's the answer. Only those forgiven by God because of Jesus. My question to you this morning is this. Have you been forgiven by God through Jesus? If you have, my guess is right now you are over the top, deep down joyful. And you are excited and thrilled that God has reached down into the the grave of your life and raised you up, resurrected you. He has saved you. He's forgiven you. He opened your eyes to see the beauty and the treasure of Jesus. Your heart right now is pounding, boom, boom, boom. You're so happy. You're blessed to be forgiven. You're not sorry that you heard the gospel again this morning. Man, you are resonating with everything we're saying. You love rehearsing this to yourself. If there's anyone here listening, though, and you're finding those responses absent, that you're still wondering, how do I find forgiveness? I would urge you, I would pastorally plead with you. Do not look to the dollar. Do not look to a political party. Do not look to a family name. Look to Jesus on the cross. Where there, Jesus took your place, absorbed your pain. God saw it, accepted it as a worthy sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world. Now God offers to everyone who would believe forgiveness. And would you this morning ask God to forgive you because of Jesus? It would sound something like this. God, I believe that you are holy and that I'm not. I'm separated from you by my sin. But Jesus came and bore my sin in his body on the cross. And so God, would you through Jesus, save me. I believe that Jesus is your son, died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And so God, with the little faith I had this morning, I, I trust Jesus to forgive me. Would you, God, save me and forgive me through him? And God will do that. He'll save you from your sin. He'll forgive you. And the question you've been asking late at night, early in the morning, or maybe for years, how do I absolve myself of wrongs? How do I find forgiveness? You'll have the answer to that question. It's in God through Jesus. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.